host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books, at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie sounds like your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 1991's Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. This month, of course, we are talking comfort movies, those movies that you put in when you just want something familiar, you want to feel good, you maybe want to hack a cry, depending on what type of emotional season that you are in. And so today we're talking about one of my favorite comfort movies of all time. Is it in the top five list of comfort movies? No, probably not, but it's very high. And it is a movie I've seen quite a few times. And that is 1991's Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. It is another Disney live action movie that um, when you talk to a a woman of a certain age, they all seem to have seen it. (laughs) So it has to be one that circulated in the 90s fairly well. I think I'm pretty sure I I can't even remember. I did not see it in the theaters. I know that for sure. I feel like this was probably a blockbuster rental that I first saw. We did not have the Disney Channel growing up at my house, so I don't think I would have seen it on there. So it must have been a VHS rental and one that I probably watched over and over again into the point where my parents just finally bought the the VHS cassette, uh, which makes sense. Um, I love this one. I often, and we've talked about this a little bit before, when I am reading or watching something, I am not the type to put myself into the story. I am, I guess, in a sense, voyeuristic about storytelling. I like to sit on the outside and watch it play out. And before me, I don't put myself into the story itself. Um, And I'm always, though, really attached to very particular kind of female characters, the ones that are the outcasts, the ones that um, either have insecurities or are in an environment of insecurity that find ways to overcome the odds. They're very resilient. One of my favorite books of all time, which I know I have talked about, is A Wrinkle in Time. I love that book for a variety of different reasons. But that was the first time when I was reading a book that I saw myself in the characters, which again, I typically don't do. But there was something about the character of Meg in A Wrinkle in Time that just felt like me. And while I do not have horses, I don't particularly like horses. I am not a horse person. I have never dove into a pool on a horse. I have never, I did not grow up in just abject poverty like Sonora Webster. There's something about Sonora's story though that I I resonate with. And I think it's just her stubbornness. Um, Nobody's going to tell her what she can and cannot do. She will find her own limits. And I I just really enjoy that about her. And I've always just loved the character of Sonora Webster. I'm also mad about Al Carver, (laughs) who is played by Michael Scherfling, who was Jake Ryan in 16 Candles, a movie that we will talk about eventually. I'm still trying to muster up that courage to do so because it's a complicated story. Um, but I just, I, when I, I was so in love with Jake Ryan and 16 Candles, which is my favorite movie of all time, 
And then I saw him in this and I was like, oh my goodness, he's in more things. And I just remember that being one of the first times where I realized I was going to see people in different things. And I just really liked that. This is also the movie. So local local theater, retro theater, the art craft, the historic art craft theater in Franklin, Indiana. If you've never been, highly recommend you go. When you are waiting in the concession line, they have this book of just, or a clipboard that's like, if what is a movie that you would like to see here? And every time I go, I put Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken on that list, and I have now trained other people to put it on the list. I have not yet seen it come to the art craft, but I am hopeful. This is the movie that I would love to see on the big screen. I missed out when it was first released, uh, but I would love to see it on the screen. So I am excited to talk to th- about this one today. Uh, it is one of those that... Um, you know, is complicated itself. And we will talk about that. We will acknowledge the issues and we will celebrate the successes and we will have fun with our conversation about 1991's Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. But first, let's listen to the trailer. What's your secret wish? What did you always want to be? In every girl's life, there are dreams of adventure, of romance, of greatness. But Sonora had a special dream. Are you? Your new diving girl. No, you're not. A diving girl has to be strong. A diving girl has to be brave, fearless, a showman. But I can do it, because I can do anything. Good. You can get out of here. I'm not going to leave until you give me a job. Go on, get. Have a good trip. She was ready to face the challenge, but not alone. There's the tower. The horse is going to get hurt. Nope. Just the riders. Yeah, you really think you can do it, huh? Sure. If Dr. Carver ever gives me a chance. You can mount that horse while he's moving. I'll let you train to be a diving girl. Sonora would learn that a dream worth having... I can't do it. I know I can. ...is worth fighting for. Ah, that girl! We did it, boy! All right, all right. He's doing good, though. But what she never expected... It's for you. ...was to find someone who would share her dream. Sonora... I love you. Just need a little more time. No, it's gotta stop. I don't want you hurt. I have to do this. Well, this will just like the practice, right? What if I can't do it? You'll do it. When dreams take flight, wild hearts can't be broken. Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken was directed by Steve Miner. It looks like Miner started out in movies and then would eventually spend a lot of time in TV. So his first directing credits were Friday the 13th, parts two and three, and then another really cheesy looking horror movie called House, which I don't, I can't remember if I have seen this one. The movie poster is unbelievably familiar to me. It's it's one that I know I've seen a ton of times. It's like a zombie hand ringing a doorbell. And I watched the trailer on IMDb and it feels vaguely familiar, but I, I can't put my finger on whether or not I actually saw that movie. But he also directed Forever Young with Mel Gibson which was a really good one, and I've been meaning to rewatch that one. So we might talk about Forever Young not too and not too long. And then Lake Placid, which 
I was oddly really into for a while. <laughs> For reasons that cannot be explained. I have never laughed harder. Okay. I laughed really hard at Bruce Almighty when Steve Carell is being like, um, oh, when when Jim Carrey is making Steve Carell on air make the, the funny sounds. I laughed so hard I thought I was going to have to leave the theater. But there was something about Lake Placid where he is riding in a boat. Bill Pullman is is driving a boat and the way he's standing is so awkward that I just lost it. And I rewatched that scene, I don't know, a hundred times. And Betty White is fantastic and it's just a big crocodile. I I loved it. I love that movie. I don't know why, but there we go. Uh, Wild Hearts was written by Matt Williams and Olay Sasson. I'm not entirely sure how to say that name. I do apologize. Matt Williams is best known as the creator and executive producer of the hit series Roseanne and the co-creator and executive producer of Home Improvement. He also directed Where the Heart Is, starring Natalie Portman and Ashley Judd, a rom-com that I do really enjoy. Olay is a cinematographer. That's kind of what his his credit is, the biggest credit on IMDb is for him. But he's also directed the 1994 version of The Fantastic Four, which I am not familiar with. And then some really bad TV and a lot of music videos. So you just look at this combination. This gentleman that made horror films is also directing... Wild hearts can't be broken. Just <laughs> It seems like an odd combination, but that's what I find so fascinating about these storytellers and these creators, how they kind of jump from different types of story, which is really interesting. So Sassone met the real Sonora Webster Carver sometime in the late 1980s and wanted to make a 30-minute documentary about her career as a diving girl in the Great Depression. Sassone then contacted producer Matt Williams about the idea, and Williams then suggested it would make a great feature-length film. And that is absolutely all I could find about production. But that doesn't, to be honest, really surprise me. I wasn't really expecting to. Pretty typical of a live-action Disney flick in the 90s that if it wasn't a huge blockbuster, you're not going to actually find any production notes about it. It is, of course... Actually, based on a true story, though, uh, the real-life Sonora Webster was born in 1904 and passed in 2003 at the age of 99. What a life, man. That is awesome. She grew up in rural Georgia and became a featured act at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City with her diving horses, which would plunge over 40 feet into an 11-foot pool. Sonora's sister, Arnett, who was also a diving girl, said that a horse was never injured during the run of the actual show. So that's... That's a very cool little tidbit. I, we'll get back to that in a second. So the movie stars Gabrielle Anwar as Sonora Webster. You might also know her from the live-action Disney film The Three Musketeers. She did play the Queen of France. Uh, she was also in Burn Notice, which I started rewatching this summer, which has been a lot of fun. Michael Scherfling as Al Carver. He was in um, Vision Quest and 16 Candles. Cliff Robertson as Doc Carver. He was also um, Peter Parker's uncle in the first uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. Dylan Cussman as Clifford. Kathleen York as Marie. And Frank Renzulli as Mr. Slater. Burt Reynolds apparently turned down the role of Dr. W.F. Carver, which I'm glad he did because I can't imagine Burt Reynolds in that role. And I have nothing against Burt Reynolds. I just 
he doesn't fit in that role. I like it exactly the way it is. I have no idea what the budget of the film was, but it was released on Memorial Day weekend in 1991. It made $2.7 million during that weekend and would go on to make under 7.3, just under $7.3 million. And that was all domestically. So it sounded like it was, wasn't released worldwide and they didn't say it was a box office flop. So they weren't actually expecting a ton of money on this one. And it also makes it sound like maybe they earned back their budget. So good for them. The movie has a 73% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% audience score. It doesn't look like there were enough professional critics to get a consensus though, but there were over 10,000 audience reviews. So I love that 89% score. Roger Ebert gave it only two stars, but a thumbs up. Raj said, I make it my policy to never recommend movies for a specific age group on the grounds that a critic has enough of a job reading his own mind without starting in on anyone else's. If I did not have that policy, I would definitely suggest that Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken is a movie with a great deal of appeal for young adolescent girls. Movies like this remind me of a more innocent time of films like Lassie Come Home and National Velvet and characters like Andy Hardy. The movie has undeniable charms, and yet I found myself unpersuaded, perhaps because I resist having my emotions manipulated with cinematic chiropractic. I I disagree with the cinematic chiropractic, but I do absolutely agree with the feel of movie from a more innocent time. I think it absolutely gives off that vibe. I also read a 1991 New York Times review by Stephen Holden, and Holden said, Many of the scenes in Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, a sweet, old-fashioned movie about a girl who loves horses, are bathed in a soft golden light. That's because the past in movies of this sort is always more magical than the present, even if that past is the depression, the era of this G-rated family picture. He also goes on to praise the way that the director's minor made a fairly low-key movie, that didn't sensationalize the act or become overly sentimental. So it sounds like he was a little less pretentious than Roger Ebert, who seems to have something against 12-year-old girls. (laughs) And I don't think that's really true. Every movie has an audience, and it just seems like this one didn't include Roger Ebert, which which is absolutely fair. And I think I've noticed that the more that I've done this podcast is that especially as I release an episode and I have people come up to me that said, I have never seen that. What is that movie? Um, I almost didn't listen to that episode because I, I had never heard of that movie before that, you know, we find these at different times in our lives. And if you were not a 12 year old girl in 1991, a young child at that age, then you might not have come across this one. And I just think that's interesting. I, on the other hand, love to go back and find those movies. What are the movies that I missed when I was younger? And I still somehow, I don't know how, am able to connect to that young Emily. And I usually really enjoy the movies. There are some that haven't held up uh, that I have watched, but most of them, I can remember what it was like to be a young girl. And I can remember how in love with storytelling I was. And I can usually connect to the movie. But now a summary of the film, just in case you haven't seen this one, which I think is a fair assumption. Uh, I Probably a little more widespread than LA Story, but I don't know. I would love to hear if you have seen this one. So Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken is a, about a young girl growing up in Depression-era Georgia. Her name is Sonora Webster, and she dreams of a life bigger than the one that she knows. She's living with her aunt. Um, her parents have been killed. She's living with her aunt, her family, and her, her own sister, Arnett. 
Um, and those dreams often, these big dreams that she has, often leave her kind of at odds with the people around her. Uh, so whether it's trying to jump a fence with her family's workhorse after being taunted by this local bully of a girl, just or disappointing her aunt once again that um, she does things impulsively a lot of times and that just leaves her in a lot of hot water. So when her aunt finally gets fed up, because she does, in fact, try to jump this fence with her family's big workhorse, and it ends up letting the cows out of the pasture. Her aunt decides to hand Sonora over to the state. She's going to keep Arnett with her, but Sonora she can't handle anymore. She's going to release her to the state. Well, Sonora runs away to find herself a better life, and she walks for I don't know how long and makes her way to a nearby-ish fair where she had taken an ad. They were at a candy store, her and her sister. And she saw this ad that Doc Carver is looking for a new diving horse girl. This death-defying spectacle where a young woman mounts a running horse that dives off a 40-foot platform into an 11-foot tank of water below. So she finds Doc Carver. He laughs her off, this young girl that doesn't look like a star. He, in fact, has a poster of his current diving girl. <laughs> She's not voluptuous in any way, but... Sonora is is young. She is still kind of a kid. And so he looks at her, she's like, you do not have what this person has to be a showman, you know, <laughs> which is a little bit of a, she's like, well, I'll get it, <laughs> which I think is her confidence. I love it so much. But she, she kind of really latches herself onto this chair and says, you know what, I'm not going to leave until you give me a job, which he finally does. He gives her a job, but it's shoveling manure and helping out at a staples. And he says, while you're doing that, I will maybe consider training you to be a diving girl. So while she's working for Doc Carver, she meets and starts to fall for his son, Al. Al is a bit of a wayward soul. He is a gambler, he is a young man, though, who is just has a really difficult relationship with his father. Um, you find out at a certain scene that um, it seems that his mother got fed up with Doc and, and left. And so he kind of has that urge to want to run and be away from his father, who is just strict and um, angry and rough and just kind of difficult to be around at times. So... Sonora starts to build this relationship with him and Al agrees to help her tame this wild horse on this ranch. And he says, if you can do this, if you can ride in and let Doc Carver see it, then maybe he'll let you train to be a diving girl. So they work for a long time training to get this horse, to break this horse. She's finally able to ride, ride in on this horse. Um, and Doc is not impressed. And he says, well, that's great, whatever. But can you do a, a riding mount? Can you do a running mount? So um, he wants the horse to run around in a circle. And while it's moving, she has to grab hold of the saddle and pull herself up onto the horse. And so they start to do that. And she falls off and falls off and falls off. And she ends up breaking her nose. And he just keeps pushing. Get back on that platform. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And Al is kind of furious. He hates to see. He's putting her, this this woman that he now has feelings for in harm's way. He doesn't seem to care about her safety or anything. He just keeps pushing, just keeps pushing. Well, by the end of the scene, she is able to get on the horse. But then him and Doc have words and Al decides to leave. He can no longer be around his dad. So he leaves, we're going to call it the ranch, their home, um, and kind of goes on his own, which upsets Sonora because she, you know, she's really starting to like him. 
Um, and so while Al is gone, the show travels and they're doing decent, but then, you know, it's still the depression and then the fairs start to dry up. People don't have money to put on the fairs. There's no opportunity. And so they are really struggling to find their next show. And that's when Al shows up again. And, um, he has a contract for them. He has made this gentleman, uh, agree to a contract in Atlantic city on the steel pier, um, Slater, the guy's name is Slater. And so, uh, they are going to travel all the way to Atlantic city and put on the show. And I, I can't remember how long the contract was, but let's say six months, it's a six month contract for the show there. So on their way to Atlantic city, um, I should say Al and Doc have reconciled at this point. On their way to to Atlantic City, Doc Carver actually passes away from a heart attack. And so now Al kind of has to take over the show. He's going to have to be the showman, something that he's never really had a heart for. It was kind of what his dad did, but he's, he's going to step into that position. So they head off to the coast um, and they get to the boardwalk. And on the opening day, the horse that Sonora is diving with, it's running up this long ramp to the top of the platform that's going to drop off. Well, down below in the stands where people are watching this, there's like a, there's a band, not a, a what I don't, a brass band, I guess. Um, and there's a guy with cymbals. And so right as the horse is about to jump, the guy hits the cymbals and it spooks the horse and the horse ends up just kind of falling off the platform instead of jumping off the platform. And that kind of startles Sonora, who then kind of forgets to close her eyes when she hits the water. The horse isn't harmed. Sonora isn't really harmed. She has no broken bones, no blood. Um, But she ends up, she kind of rubs at her eyes and you're like, hmm, that has to be something. And it is. She ends up with detached retinas in both eyes and is permanently blind. Well, Slater can't have that. He has this contract. He needs to get this the show up and running again. So he gives Al a week to figure out what to do. Um, Al goes and calls the former diving girl, Marie, who comes in to kind of help out. But Sonora is convinced that she can still do the show. She's convinced that she has a good enough connection with her horse lightning that she'll be able to mount it even blind and be able to do the jump. And so Al is in kind of a a similar situation then that Doc was when he was teaching Sonora to do the, the running mount. So she falls and she falls and she falls and he wants to stop though. He doesn't want to keep it going. He doesn't want to see her, her at this point, they are now engaged to be married. Um, but he finally says, you know, this is enough. I can't do this anymore. I can't watch you do this. I, I have to think about your safety. Well, Sonora is stubborn and persistent. So the day of the show reopening is here. She actually locks Marie into the trailer, sneaks out to the ladder, climbs the tower, and waits for lightning to run up the ramp while Al just kind of watches horrified below. He does not know all this is going to happen. She actually gets help from Clifford. I haven't really talked about Clifford, but she's this ni- he's this nice guy that she met at the fair who wants to create his own death-defying stunt, so he helps out the show. So Clifford has helped arrange this whole thing, believing that she can do it too. Lightning comes running up the ramp. She does it finally a successful hold onto the harness, gets onto the horse, and has a beautiful dive. Sonora gets to hear the cheers for her once again, what she thought she was never going to have, and they all live happily ever after. So a few thoughts. 
few thoughts and comments as I was watching. Uh, first, as I mentioned, I just love the confidence Sonora has that her <laughs> that her big old workhorse, this thing, it looks like a Clydesdale of sorts. It's like one of those big beefy horses. And she thinks it's going to be able to jump the fence at the beginning of the movie. The folly of youth. I mean, I could have, I don't even know anything about horses, but I'm like, I don't think that horse can jump that high. <laughs> and it can't. And she lets the horses out. So I love that at the start that she just is so impulsive and you, it really sets up her character well at the beginning of the movie. I really appreciate how they did that. There's just a lot of hope in Sonora too, something that I've always loved about the character. Hope, again, that her horse can jump this fence. Hope that she'll one day make a name for herself. Hope that sets her out on the road instead of becoming a ward of the state. Hope that she'll have an opportunity. She'll win over Doc Carver to teach her how to be a diving girl. There's just so much there that she never stops hoping, even when she, it's determined that she is blind. She just keeps hoping, I can do it. I know I can do it. She never doubts herself, which just is very admirable in a character. Here's the problem, though. So Sonora, at the beginning of the movie, uh, she is at school. She's on her way to school when the girl taunts her into jumping over the fence, and she gets to the school. She's late because she had to help put the cows back in the pasture, and um, the girl starts to moo and taunt her, so she punches her, which, rightly so, This I, I don't condone violence, but this girl needed to be punched. <laughs> I like it when a bully gets their comeuppance. Um, but she's in school, right? So she is a teenager of some sorts. And because it's the Great Depression, one could assume she is a relatively young teenager. Uh, because if she was any older, I would think that she would be working at some capacity to earn money for her family. So a child. She is a child. She runs off, finds her way to a fair, gets a job with a diving horse production, and she falls in love with a grown man. It does not say how old Al Carver is, but he is a grown man and it's squidgy. Who in return, though, seems to genuinely fall in love with her. He's not creepy about it. Not that it makes it better. It doesn't make it better. And outside of the school, it does not seem they do not play Sonora like a teenager. Not that it makes it better. But this whole relationship between Al and Sonora is very complicated because she is very young and he is not very young. He's not like an old man. I would say he's in his early 20s, maybe middle 20s. Again, it does not make it better, but it's complicated. And I, I, there is a book that she wrote, which we're going to talk about later in the book recommendations. And I'm tempted to read it because I would like to know more about Al Carver and how old he was and how squidgy this is in real life. And that gets me wondering why they made her so young in the movie. Yes, it's based on a real story, but they're also taking many liberties to tell this story. So why not make her older? Why not shift the story to take away the squidgy? And this happens a lot in teen fiction, especially fantasy fiction. The publishers have marketed books like um, Sarah J. Mass's Throne of Glass and Court of Thorns and Roses as teen fiction, but they are not teen fiction. Sure, the protagonist is supposedly in their teens, but there's absolutely nothing about their behavior, their dialogue, their circumstances that is reminiscent of a real teenage experience. It's a number that is said once at the very beginning of the book and they're forgotten so that they can market it to teenagers, which is very lucrative. So it just, it bothers me that they do this um, because I think it's manipulative and it, it does not, I, I don't know. It, it, 
does a disservice to the storytelling, I think. Uh, Michael Scherfling makes it work, though. Okay. Again, it doesn't make it better. But he plays Al Carver with this gentility that you also see in 16 Candles with Jake Ryan. That character is also problematic. One day we will talk about it in a full scope. But he has this gentleness to him that takes away the creepy, at least, I guess. Al the first is the first guy to give her a chance to she, see she's up for the challenge. So it's understandable why she forms this connect, connection with him. And Al seems to just love her humility and her stubbornness and her drive. And she's not like Marie, the original diving girl who's kind of obsessed with her looks and wanting to become famous and going out and party. Like, he just doesn't seem attractive to that. She has hopes and dreams, so Nora does. She wants something bigger, and she sees something in him um, and has respect for him, and I think that he really appreciates that. Um, so it, it works. The maybe, movie makes it work because you also forget almost right away that Sonora is supposed to be a teenager. Again, doesn't make it better, but that is just something that really bothered me during this watch all of a sudden. So within the movie, when Al leaves, when he gets upset and leaves Doc, Doc, um, he promises, Al promises to write Sonora a letter, to write her. Um, Doc keeps taking the mail and hiding it. He doesn't give Sonora the letters, and I'm not entirely sure what, why. I don't know if it's selfishness or fear or pride um, that he has that little trust in his son. I, I don't, or he's he's just that selfish that he, he doesn't want anything to get in the way of Sonora's career. I don't know. I, that part always really bothered me. I hate that trope though the hiding of the letters she does eventually find it and that's why he proposes because she gives him a big hug it's all very chaste guys i promise it's all very chaste but that part has always stuck up that i don't really fully understand why doc carver made the choices that he did i'm assuming that gabrielle anwar didn't actually do her own diving but by golly they found an excellent stunt double because i still believe it's her I watched so intently during this rewatch as she dove off those horses and they, they did have to change it. They were not actually diving from 40 feet, but I couldn't tell it was not her. So I, I couldn't find anything to tell me it was or was not her, but I wish, I wish I could meet her one day and ask, Hey, did you actually dive? I have questions. I remember really, really wanting to go to Atlantic city after watching this movie too. I have a feeling it has lost some of that nostalgic splendor, I guess you could call it, but I still really kind of want to see it. There's something about a boardwalk, a boardwalk on the ocean, a boardwalk on the ocean that is kind of a hub of entertainment that brings people together. I've been to places like Virginia Beach and Myrtle Beach that have those boardwalk feels, and there is something very nostalgic to it. Like you could almost close your eyes and pretend that it was early 1900s and people would come in their finery and walk the boardwalk and, and watch these types of in pieces of entertainment, forms of entertainment. I also wonder after watching the movie where this idea of diving horses came from. I mean, just imagine you were sitting and you're like, you know what we could do with this horse? We could have it run up this ramp to a very tall platform and just leap off. And who did it first? Did they have the horse dive off first by itself to see if it survived? How horrible is that? Or was there a rider on it the whole time? I, where, where does that, where do things like this start? Who comes up with this? I, 
and you could never come up with it today because of all of the different groups um, that are out there that feel so, this sounds callous, like I don't feel this deeply, which I absolutely do, but for animal safety that you just, you couldn't get away with something like that now. So who, who did that? <laughs> who came up with that? Or was it kind of a fluke that a horse... <laughs> A horse jumped off a cliff one day and survived, and they're like, hey, let's make a show of this. I, I would just like to know where that came from. And I don't know if this is appropriate to say another thought that came to my brain or an observation, and this may be inappropriate, and please, I acknowledge that. I don't know the best way to talk about this. Um, but Gabrielle Anwar did a really good job playing a blind woman. I I'm not, again, I'm not sure if that's an appropriate thing to say, and I hope it's not offensive. And if it is, I do apologize. That is not my intent. But the way you track her eyes as she, after she went blind, she just did a really, a really good job of making you believe that she had had these detached retinas and could no longer see. It's the way she, she held her head differently. Um, she'd almost pick up a point and kind of stare, um, or she'd just have her eyes closed. It was, it was just really well done, in my opinion. And my final thought is the, the ending is absolutely too abrupt. And I see this a lot in live action Disney movies in particular, especially from like the 70s, 80s, 90s. So she makes that final jump, the first jump that she has made blind. Al helps her off the horse. They raise their hands in celebration. And then it's just a voiceover. And she dove for another 11 years. And that was it. I mean, it's so very abrupt. Cuts it off. End of movie. I think I just really wanted to see them get married. But I didn't get to see them, which is a bummer. And that's all my thoughts and comments about it. <laughs> few interesting tidbits. The 40-foot dive was actually smaller to ensure the safety of the horses while the film was in production. They could not dive more than 10 feet. The dive was made larger through visual trickery, which you can tell. It looks a little hokey. I hadn't noticed it before, but I had read that little interesting tidbit, and it just really, it really changes the way you watch it. So if you love this movie and then have not heard that interesting tidbit before, if that changes it for you, I am very sorry. It, it took me out of it a little because I'm like, it, lo <laughs> it looks like a fake horse that they've thrown off a tower. Um, but the movie's still good. Don't worry about it. This was the last acting work of Michael Scherfling, who quit the film business in the early 1990s to concentrate in his own selling furniture business. Quoted from the American Film Institute, Sonora Carver was quoted in a June 11th, 1991 article from the Santa Barbara News Press saying she resented the inclusion of a scene in which her late husband is inaccurately portrayed attempting to strike his father. Um, I don't, there was a lot that said she was not happy with the movie in general. She, she did not believe it really was a true portraying of what happened in the movie. Like, but it was kind of funny because she said, I did this, 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 and this. I was like, well, that was the whole movie. Um, but I, she apparently did not see herself, in a sense, on the screen as that Sonora Carver. That seems um, also not see. That it did not feel true to life. Sorry, I didn't even put that together, that she, too, was blind. 
Production designer Randy Sir had only two weeks to build a diving tower and a water tank that can be transported from the horse training facility in Newhall, California, to filming locations in South Carolina. After considerable research, Sir found a manufacturer that constructed its water tanks with bolts rather than welding. He ordered a tank measuring 40 feet in diameter and 10 feet deep with a capacity of 88,750 gallons. The tank was built to withstand the water displacement created by a horse and rider with a combined weight of 1,000 pounds. Sir also designed a diving tower that could withstand the 60-mile-per-hour winds common during hurricane season on the Atlantic coast. I wouldn't have even thought that. What happened to that diving thing in Atlantic City? Myrtle Beach actually stood in for Atlantic City. Warnings of hurricanes and tropical storms in the area threatened their production. And finally, a minor accident involving a diving horse during the Myrtle Beach shoot was reported in the October 29, 1990 daily variety. Although John Freed of the Greenville, South Carolina Humane Society stated that the horse tripped while climbing out of the water tank following a dive, the animal sustained no injuries. Regardless, the United Activists for Animal Rights and its affiliate, the Coalition to Protect Animals and Entertainment, objected to the idea of horses being forced to dive and called for a boycott of both the production and the completed film. Television personality and animal rights activist Bob Barker suggested that the horses were being endangered as the incident could have easily resulted in a broken leg. And that was our final tidbit. Does this movie hold up? I think it does. I really enjoyed it. it there is that squidginess about their age difference. I would like to know more about the real lifeness of that situation. But overall, the look of the movie, the sentimentality of the movie really, really works. And it is a movie that I don't get tired of and I could put in at any time and watch the whole thing or hop in at a particular moment. It is on Disney Plus if you have Disney Plus, or of course you could go to your local public library and see if you can get it from there. Um, But it's one that I definitely think if you haven't checked out, you should watch. Uh, Wild Hearts is sweetly sentimental. So as we think of movie night recommendations, kind of keep that in mind. And it's an idealized version of a very hard time in American history. It's a shiny version of the past. It's also just awesome live action fun. I've already suggested before The Rocketeer. I think that would be a really good pairing. Again, it's a shiny version of the past. Um, But I, I would stick with that element, the Disney live action element, which The Rocketeer fits as well. Um, You could also pop in Shipwrecked. Do you remember that one? I forgot about it, but it popped up on IMDb and I was like, you know what? That would be a great recommendation to go with Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. So when his ship is sunk in a hurricane, Hakan Hakan ends up alone on a jungle island only to discover his shipmates have been kidnapped by a gang of ruthless pirates. Now he must summon all of his courage and instinct for survival to outwit the pirates and rescue his friends. Sounds a little bit like Muppet Treasure Island, which is not a bad thing. Um, But if you have not watched that one, check that one out. You could also go with Parent Trap, the new or the old, whichever floats your boat. Or sinks in the case of Shipwrecked, I guess. That was a bad pun. I rewatched the trailer of uh, Shipwrecked, and I definitely got a wave of nostalgia for that one. And then I started thinking of Pippi Longstocking. Ugh. I love that one. That was another one that I checked out a lot, but my parents refused to buy me the VHS for that one. Uh, But I tried to check it out at the library not that long ago, and I ended up with like the, is it Swedish version? I don't know, the the foreign language version, and that is not the one that I I remember so fondly. So I'm going to have to try again and find the pippy of my youth. 
book recommendations. So you could definitely try to pick up a copy of the real life Sonora Webster Carver's book, A Girl and Five Brave Horses, if you'd like to get, again, her version of her life. But I'm also going to throw out a few kids titles that are set during the Great Depression. So they also deal with heart issues, but with the kind of kind of same glow that Hollywood portrays. You might pick up No Promises in the Wind by Irene Hunt. Hunt won the Newbery Award for Across Five Aprils. Um, In No Promises in the Wind, it's 1932, Americans dream. Dreams were simple, a job, food to eat, a place to sleep, and nothing without, and shoes without holes. But for millions of people, these simple needs were nothing more than dreams. At 15 years of age, Josh has to make his own way through a country of angry and frightened people. This is the story of a young man struggled to find a life for himself in the most turbulent of times. I'd also just suggest the Newbery Award-winning title, Sarah Plain and Tall by Patricia McLaughlin. So that one is set in the late 19th century and told from young Anna's point of view. Sarah Plain and Tall tells the story of how Sarah Elizabeth Wheaton comes from Maine to the prairie to answer Papa's advertisement for a wife and mother. Before Sarah arrives, Anna and her younger brother Caleb wait and wonder, will Sarah be nice? Will she sing? Will she stay? So a couple titles that you might read if you really enjoyed Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. And that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. We have one more episode in our conversation about comfort movies. I'm going to have the weirdos Jessica and Aubrey back on the podcast next week, and we are going to give you our top five picks for comfort movies. If you've got the time, again, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like really random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. Well, those people, those friends of yours or potential new friends of yours, they can join in on the fun as well. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today.